Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today on Housing Wire Daily, I'm joined by lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about whether higher mortgage rates are doing their job to cool home prices. We'll also talk about the latest CPI data and the strength of this job market as we slide closer to a recession. Logan, thanks for joining the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah. Very busy day. (laughs) It is great to have you on. So tell us what the data is that you're looking at and why it's a busy day for you. Well, today the CPI inflation data came out and uh, it was hotter than uh, anticipated on the headline, but the core inflation, the growth rate is falling. And since commodity prices have been falling recently, it doesn't show up on this data line. What had happened was bond yields slightly went up uh, and then they came right back down. So uh, the 10-year yield uh, as of this very second is at 2.92%. And like I've always talked about, we we just had the hottest economic growth, hottest inflation growth. Uh, data line is cooling. Five of the six recession ref- red flags are up. And even with this headline hot print year over year, um, uh, bond yields fell. And so much of what the Federal Reserve has priced in, uh, or so much of what the market priced in early on was, you know, a kind of a tug of war. And this is kind of what we always wanted to talk about. Uh, uh, Markets, mortgage markets, and bond yields peaking, and then the the question is, can the economic data stay firm enough uh, for the Fed to do all its rate hikes? And this is the battle right now because the bond market really doesn't kind of believe the Fed can go full through. Uh, it hasn't retreated in a big fashion, but we kind of tapped out at three fifty three point five zero percent, and now it's we're under three percent even with this data line. So. It, it, this is the story for the second half. Does the Fed e- can the Fed even uh, raise rates more because federal Fed rate hikes have a lagging impact? And since five of my six recession red flags are up, and the sixth one is trending lower, where I could raise it maybe in a few months, the history has said no. Uh, that this is we're kind of toward the end of what the Federal Reserve is doing, and commodity prices have fallen recently. We'll see if that continues. Of course, if war breaks out even more in Russia or even in China, stuff like that can create more supply shortages. But for now, I think the, the market reaction to this report is, it, it isn't too, um, uh, too confusing for market participants. So we are recording this on Wednesday. This will go live on Thursday, just to clarify that. And so last month when we when we had the CPI data, that created all sorts of uh, chaos going on. So so why the difference this month when when you're like, yeah, you know, it 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 went up, it came down, it's okay. So there's there's been times where the bond market just takes off uh, off of a headline report that was stronger than anticipated. But traditionally, what happens it eventually fades out to a trend. And we actually broke above 2018 levels on the 10-year yield. Uh, and we weren't able to hold that. And now we're below. And I think now the difference between now and last last month is that commodity prices have fallen. Uh, so it won't show up in this report, but it will show up in the next report. And if economic data gets worse and the growth rate of inflation is falling, you know that's kind of what the Fed says, the things we need to see. So it becomes kind of this, you know, they're they're trying to like 
nail it perfectly where, okay, they've got the markets to react already. We've seen some of the fluff out of the uh, excesses in the economy. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure they don't want American citizens to, to lose their jobs and be stressed. So they're trying to thread this needle, which is very difficult. But uh, I think the bond market reaction today is, 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 is perfectly right in line. If oil prices had been rising the last few weeks and commodity prices were rising, I think this would be a different conversation, but that's not the case anymore. Well, you know, you have been team higher rates. So so you're talking about uh, the bond market and how that, how that affects rates. And this is the part that really affects those in housing is those mortgage rates. So team higher rates. So now that we have higher rates, are they doing their job? Are you, are you excited? Do you, do you think they should continue to go up? Do you think they're about right? Where are we on mortgage rates? So, of course, being part of team higher rates, you get every dart thrown at you. Um, and, you know, I have to explain why I or say or do something. I think everyone has to have their own models and reasons why. And, uh, you, you know, the article that I wrote about this, and, and, and now that we're in June, or now that we're in July, we have June housing data. And what we've seen in housing data this year is we're seeing now 20, 24, 18, 27% year-over-year declines in sales. And we're still seeing 18, 21% home price growth gains in certain areas of the US. So knowing that the inventory channels got worse by October of last year, and we talked about this last uh, October, it wasn't higher rates or the stock market correcting, inventory channels got worse. So you could get yourself really in a bad spot. Uh, uh, with inventory. And we did. Inventory started at all-time lows. And this is the period in time where we can't have this happen because it creates forced bidding. And the reason I talked about this as forced bidding is that, um, you know, we had more sales, higher inventory, and less price growth during the housing bubble years. Now we have less sales, a lot less inventory, and hotter home price growth. This is an inventory issue. Uh, demand being stable, and the June data shows it. We're still showing double-digit home price growth. You know, in the previous expansion, when rates rise, we get down to kind of low single digits. Okay, that that's is, is is somewhat reasonable. It wasn't the case, and by October of last year, it was apparent to anybody who tracks inventory channel data. Um, so going team higher rates, it, it was it was full-blown guns of Navarone. This had to happen because. We were heading toward another 20% home price growth year on top of the 20% home price growth year we had the year and the double digit home price growth had we had in 2020. That is not a good thing. And there's no other mechanism, I, I think, or I believe that we have at this current moment that can change the housing market unless we have higher rates. And it doesn't it matter. We had inflation data in 2021. And the bond market couldn't even break over 1.94% at all. That's because global yields were uh, still low. In fact, the 2022 forecast article was that, hey, listen, you know, if Germany and Japan's 10-year yields can get up, we can get past 4% mortgage rates. Well, that was going to happen regardless of Russia invading Ukraine. It's just that after the Russian Ukrainian uh, uh, Russian invading Ukraine, mortgage rates and bond market prices just took off. And the Fed kind of took its pivot and, and everything was, you know, trying to cool down the growth rate of inflation. So in that context, it's doing, it's doing what it's supposed to do. Higher rates impact demand. What it should do is cool things down. It allows inventory to grow. 
more days on the market, and this madness, this absolute chaotic madness that we've had in housing should come to an end soon. Uh, because it wasn't a healthy housing market. It was a savagely unhealthy housing market. And since I'm not worried about a 2008 housing crisis, it's, it's so silly. I see these memes out. The 2022 housing crash is 2008 all over again. 2008, where we had major delinquencies and foreclosures and over you know 4 million inventory levels. We're still starting the year at 870 and uh, 870,000, we're just trying to work our way back up to 2019 levels. Um, uh, but uh, when you're not worried about that, you can you know that higher rates can create just a cooling process and, and things will be fine. But again, for every positive, there's usually a negative, right? And there are negative aspects about higher rates. I don't discount that. You know, I, I talk about that in the article. Well, number one, um, I think people who've known me over the years say when rates go higher, the builders will, you know, cool down the production. We, we saw that in 2018, where 5% mortgage rates back then completely paused the rate of growth of construction. Uh, rates fell down very quickly the next few months uh, in 2019, and everything kind of started to get back on online. But it took like 30 months for the builders to get their stuff together here. Uh, in March of this year, when the new home sales report came out, and even though the report was fine, we said, okay, hey, listen, the new home sales sector is at risk. Because why? The builders pushed it on pricing, right? And this is, this is my kind of thing. Home builders and home sellers pushed it on pricing because they had pricing power. They don't care about the sustainability of housing. They are simply doing what every human being does. You make the most amount of money as possible for your uh, clients and for your shareholders, and that's normal. So they pushed it to the extreme. The only way you could put these people on their ass is with higher rates. You know, the only way you could kind of create some kind of fear in investors is higher rates. So this was it. Uh, um, higher rates happen. The builders all of a sudden now are whoop. Guess what? Demand is slowing down. We're going to slow down production. Happens all the time. It's something I've documented over the years. So that's a negative in terms of construction, construction jobs housing uh, permits, uh, future inventory in that regards, negative. Fifth recession, red flag too, which goes into the uh, other negative aspect. Because of higher rates, the recession model gets worse, right? Uh, and you know that's why that 10-year yield at 1.94%, it's been such a big part of my work going even back to 2019. Um, now we're getting closer and closer to recession, which means a general re recession means more Americans are going to lose their job. And think about, you have to think about the human element on this aspect. You're dealing with higher inflation, higher rates, and now you've lost your job. And if you have kids, it's stressful, right? So you have these crazy stock traders running around Twitter, most of them hiding behind fake names because they don't have the guts to put their name and face out there. Um, Oh, recession, crash, everything's yeah, yeah, yeah. They never understand the human element of it. Um, but uh, recessions are not good things. They, they happen, but they're not positive things. So there is a downside to higher rates. When I talk about higher rates, I'm only talking about it on the economic aspect of housing, home prices in relationship to the uh, unhealthy aspects it creates. But you traditionally don't want to be rooting for recessions, right? I mean, you really have to be a bleepity bleep to like want people to lose their jobs. Right. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Well, let's talk about the, you know, did that did it do its job uh, on cooling down home prices? Because the early evidence, it didn't feel like it was really uh, that higher rates weren't immediately making an impact. I mean, you can see some cooling. What What is your take there? And it, it, it's doing its job. And this is this has been one of the key things I've tried to talk about this year. It needs time. Right. And this has been so much of one of my talking points. Housing doesn't move like stocks. Stocks, stock, the stock market and margin debt move one to one together. It's a very fluid, efficient system. You can sell your stock at a 40% loss within seconds. A housing, the housing market is, is not that fast because the seller needs to obtain another form of shelter if they're a primary resident. So if you think all homeowners are investors and they want to, and it really it is, it's stock traders that think like this. Uh, I need to sell to get out. I need to get out at all costs because I'm I'm such a fragile person, and I don't think um, I don't I can't live my normal life. I need to get out, and I don't care if I'm homeless. I get out. That's not how the housing market works. A seller is traditionally a buyer. When they put their homes on the market, they're most likely looking to obtain another house. So whether mortgage rates are at six percent or it's at four and a half percent, they realize they can sell, like you, Sarah Wheeler. Are doing? You're selling your home, and you're buying. I am another. right now. Yeah. I'm selling my I'm home. Yes. Seller, and you're buying a home. You're not selling your home to go live on the streets, or you're not selling your home to rent. You're selling your home to purchase. So, uh, this is one of the reasons why, if you look back in inventory data going back to 1982, I was seven. That two to two and a half million is traditional inventory channels. Always right. The only period in time where the inventory channels escalated out of control was 2006 to 2011. And you could see credit deterioration in 2005, 6, 7, and 8. Then the job loss recession happened. So you had a multiple variable factor. So, so here, it's doing its job. Inventory is rising. The days on market should grow. Uh, it just takes time. I think some people are like, why are prices still up 10% or 12% or 15%? Well, we're working from all-time lows. And it just is going to take longer than what traditional assets act. Like, of course, tech stocks are down a lot. Crypto is down a lot. Housing is still positive. Why? Because it's shelter. You just have to think of it as a, as a home. It's not an investment. The investment has the velocity to move up and down a crazy. Majority of people live in their homes. Majority of renters live, right? They, they can't just let it go because of a price or anything like that. They have to have somewhere to live. And that's the slow aspect, especially when we're coming from uh, in the previous expansion was the weakest housing recovery ever. If you look at mortgage debt, it's not even positive, adjusting to inflation from the housing bubble here. So it's it's working. It just takes a little bit more time to really notice it. Uh, but the whole 2008 analogy, you know, just look at the inventory charts, draw a line. That's why this, this is. I'm, I'm basically reduced to crayon color book economic discussion. <laughs> Just take a crayon from the 2008 inventory levels and just draw a connective line down. Oh, it's beautiful. And then you get to see anybody who says 2022 is 2008. As long as you have a second grade education, you have visually can able to see anyone can figure it out. It's not. So higher rates can do its thing. It just needs time. And we don't have to worry about massive foreclosures or forced credit selling or stuff like that. We're good on that aspect. So uh, that's another reason why I, I'm, I'm not worried about 
uh, a 2008 escalation crash where people's rates are recasting or stuff like that. No, that, that you have to let go of that period. You have to evolve yourself as a human being and talk about economics post 2008, which is different. Well, our audience knows if, if they pay attention to you at all, that, uh, that 2008 narrative, uh, can drive you crazy because there are so many differences this time around. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the inventory because you talked about how higher rates. One of the things that we want to see on that is that we should see days on market go up. We should see more inventory coming online. Um, but at the same time, the builders are going to pull back. So, you know, what's the net net there if you have less home building, but maybe more of the existing homes coming on? So regarding this topic, um, I've always kind of tried to keep it very simple. Inventory has been falling since 2014. 2014 was actually the last year inventory grow. It wasn't a lot, but mortgage rates went up. Purchase application data was down 20% year over year on trend. Sales declined. Inventory went up a little bit. But it's been falling no matter what the builders are doing. Remember, in the previous expansion, builders didn't have the problem of shortages and completion data. They were building. We just have a lot of people living in homes, whether they're primary resident or renting, and we just got caught. We got caught in a very, very bad spot because we didn't have enough rental units or we didn't have enough uh, listings homes for this price growth to go up. So even the last uh, existing home sales data, the, the days on market are still teenagers, but it is taking, we are actually growing inventory this year. It's, 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 not, it's not back to 2019 levels. And I don't need inventory to get back to 2012 or 2014 or even 2016. I just need it to get back to 2019 levels. I'm completely fine. I'll take the savagely unhealthy market up, but we got to get there first. So we're working our way back up there and it's working. Uh, demand is falling as it always does with rates rise, which means less bidding wars, right? Uh, uh, it just is going to take a little bit more time for us to really see it on the days on market data and then uh, price growth should fall. I mean, for me, because my 23 uh, percent price growth model got smashed in two years. I need home prices to decline 12 to 18 percent in the next two and a half years to get my model to work. But it, nobody cares about anyone's economic models or charts. The economy will do its own thing. Uh, and, and we're not seeing the mass panic selling of inventory. It's just the buildup of slowing demand. Uh, and you know that to me is a positive aspect. What happened early this year was be, I mean, literally, the January, February housing market was the worst housing market I've ever seen post 2010. I mean, it was just utter chaos because there just wasn't enough product and there's uh, too much demand for the, for the goods. But really, in real terms, there were too many people looking at too few homes. So it's working. Uh, it, it might not seem like it because inventory isn't skyrocketing like we saw in 2006 and 78, but it's working. It's doing its thing. And to, on that aspect, it is a positive. So we just need to be patient is what you're saying. Yeah. And we, we see it in the inventory day. Now, you know, it's July, you know, so you got like about two more weeks. Um, and then we start to see the tail off of inventory just because the summer months are going. And, and usually by October, we start to see the decline. So I think a, a, a very interesting aspect is that do we see the traditional slowing down in the second part of July, because our school season is, is ending. So a lot of people just move for schools. And uh, um, does that inventory just stay traditionally the same? And then we see the fall in October, or does it stay flat or even grow a little bit? Uh, what you always want to see, if you want more inventory, you want to see inventory, you want to see year over year growth into October. 
October. And even though if the inventory data is declining on a volume basis, as long as you're showing year over year growth, that's a positive. So that's what I'm kind of looking for in the inventory front. We're kind of almost done through the kind of heat season of inventory. And, and let's see how the inventory data looks like uh, 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 in this period of time where rates are higher. And then, uh, of course, the my fear is that mortgage rates start to go back down because the economy can't, you know, is, is on the verge or going into recession. And then all of a sudden, oh, we have all this inventory now compared to last year. People go, hey, listen, rates are down 1%. I'm a, you know, and it slows that process down. But again, I'm staying consistent. I just need 2019 inventory levels. After that, I'm all good. Don't have to complain about anything ever again. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about recession, red flags. You have five up. You uh, said earlier that you know we're getting closer to that sixth recession red flag. What does what does today's data tell you about that? What are you looking for in the next couple of weeks that's that's going to determine whether you raise that flag or not? Well, the leading economic index tend to tend to your data sets and you know uh, jobless claims, housing permits, uh, manufacturing, new orders. These things are all a part of that uh, index, and some of those data lines are getting weaker. So you could actually see this index probably going to fall. We're going to we're going to get the next report very soon. We have a very slight two month decline, nothing big, but you know that's what I'm looking for uh, out there. I mean, you want to keep it simple. This is why I do progression models. They just show you the, the natural direction of economic data with an expansion of recession. They're not here to scream recession, crash, and yeah, 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 you know, all that stuff. Uh, it's very boring, but it's, it's a process. So you can see this process. I mean, if you look back in the history of US economics going back to the late 60s, uh, when you get to a certain level of the economic expansion, this data line starts to fade every time. What happened in COVID was COVID was the anomaly. Economic data was getting better and authentically housing broke out actually in February of 2020. So there was no recessionary data then. The event created a very short-term shock. And then we had the uh, America's back recovery right, right there, right after that in April. Here it's different. It looks more like a traditional cycle. You're dealing with different variables of inflation and the Federal Reserve in that matter. You're dealing with an active war that's not keeping the world uh uh, um, supply process functioning as normal. So different things, but you know, history works, right? Traditionally, data goes down before a recession. It doesn't go up. We're gonna, we didn't have a recession in, in the early part of this year, but we're starting to see this data lines get weaker. And that's why we track it. And, and that's what I'm looking for for the rest of the year. So the, the second half of 2022 is actually going to be a lot more interesting than the first half. Uh, because we've gone through this really big rise in mortgage rates. We've, the Federal Reserve has been pricing out and they've pivoted. Uh, we're still dealing, dealing with the Russian invasion and what's going on there. And those variables are, are out of anyone's control. Uh, um, does China try to invade Taiwan? Stuff, stuff like that, that you know, we have to adjust to the realities of what the economic data will become if any of those things start to get worse. So yeah, definitely second half of 2022, very interesting. It's wild that we are in the second half of 2022. It, it, this year has flown by for me, I'm sure for others. Um, one of the questions I had, you know, you talk about job loss recession. And so, you know, I know that there was obviously a job loss recession um, after the financial crisis as a result of the financial crisis. Here, what, what, like constitutes a job loss recession for you. So in other words, in every recession, some people lose their jobs, but like at what scale does it become something that's going to affect the economy and especially housing? 
Well, traditionally, whenever you lose jobs, you're going to lose uh, uh, income to produce, to purchase goods or services. But, you know, most people are always working. It's the level of job losses that matter. So naturally, what happens in a consumer-based economy, the service sector gets hit. So those jobs tend to go. So then you look at specific sectors like durable goods. This is why I've always used the Peloton example. In a sense, Peloton, the company itself, is in a recession. It laid off 20% of its workforce. Uh, the mortgage industry, you're starting to see bigger and bigger layoffs. They are already in a recession. So as a percentage of their job losses to the company, it's much bigger. So there are certain sectors that get, get, that get hit harder than others, uh, um, obviously, after the tech bubble of 2000s, some of those companies that, you know, were providing this future uh, um, uh, in the tech companies, they lost their jobs because simply the demand was not there to sustain the employment. So uh, the kind of the COVID related stocks or companies, you know, uh, we see in the mortgage industry right now, these areas are going to be hit harder. But in traditionally in a service based economy, uh, you don't have to have so many people working if the demand isn't there for your goods. Now, the difference now between other periods of time is job openings, even though it's it's faded in the last report, job openings are over a million or 11 million right now. Uh, the baby boomers are leaving the workforce. So I think it's going to be a little bit more interesting on, you know, making companies want to make sure that they have enough of their labor because if they let people go and they don't want to start bidding up for labor again. So maybe a little bit more discreet uh, uh, on the uh, uh, firing process because you can't escape death and you can't escape aging and no country has a Dorian Gray labor market. People get older, people they, people die. There's just nothing. You just have to replace them. And uh, uh, there's parts of the economy that just don't have the kind of prime age labor force growth. Uh, so they're going to be a little bit more mindful of their of their labor. We also see this in government jobs. Uh, we see a lot of teachers not going back to work because the pay isn't good. And uh, some of them complain. It's just not that fun being a teacher. So if you get something that pays more, you know, uh, you, you see uh, how government has been a little bit more mindful of why we, you know, our, our budgets might lay off people. It's going to be harder to get them back. That's something to me that's going to be more interesting going out the next three to four decades in America. Um, just because we have one generation uh, baby boomers that are leaving the workforce and dying off. Of course, Gen X is already in the workforce. Millennials are mostly in the workforce. It's Gen Z. You know, so how many, what areas of the U.S. can get Gen Z people living there? Because you always have to replace people because people die. There's nothing abnormal about that. People don't work forever. And we just have a certain group of people that are in their 60s and 70s and they you're, you're toward the end of your working lifespan at that point. You know, I have uh, two kids who are uh, technically Gen Z. So uh, very interested in that generation. I think to your point, you always have to be looking at what is that generation interested in? What are their habits? I mean, I think we made too much in some ways of like, oh, millennials are so much different than everyone else. And, and they turned out to be not that much different than anyone else. They waited longer to get married to form households, but they've been doing that at a rapid rate, just like people before them did. You know, it's just like I've talked about the last eight years at conferences. People aren't very difficult. They rent, they date, they mate, they get married three and a half years after marriage. They have kids ages 30 to 39 are, are big in this decade. And uh, um, 
those people don't live in apartments or condos. You know, they live in single family homes. So housing was always going to be a 2020 to 2024 story. And of course, when we think about the history of U.S. economics, we think of this period as having this humongous housing inflation story. That's never going to change. It's done in the record books. So the people that always talked about housing deflation of millions and millions of Americans losing their homes, selling their homes for a loss, not being able to rent, all this stuff that was prominent in the 2012 to 2019 discussion. Here we are. It's already done, right? We're in the middle of 2022. We see it in the rent inflation data and the CPI report. Uh, uh, people need somewhere to live. And we just had the biggest housing demographic patch ever recorded in history. So it's not shocking that we see rent inflation and home price inflation because people are traditionally normal, right? It's not very complicated. They do the same things over and over. They might do it longer or earlier, different generations, different times, but uh, they kind of do their stuff. They do. We're, we're fairly predictable. I, I think, you know, looking back over the things that we've talked about today, I feel like a theme is sort of the contradictions and the, the contradictory forces that are trying to win out right now in our economy, in our world. So you've got, you know, you have people losing their jobs, definitely, you know, job loss going on. But you also have all those job openings. You have, you know, inflation. And then at the same time, you have, you know, uh, the recession inflationary story working against each other, how the Fed's trying to do that. I mean, it's a pretty crazy time. You know, you know, one thing about this crazy time, one thing that we've realized with men uh, throughout the last four decades is that there are guys when they lose their jobs, don't really come back to the workforce. Um, so that's one thing that it is evident women don't have this issue as much as guys do. I've always said the American strength is actually our women's labor force. Uh, they're educated. They're, they work harder. Guys, sometimes when they get too much time on their hand, just go to a bad area. Uh, and they don't, they don't get back into the workforce. And we've seen this in the data time and time. So the concern I have with actually higher rates is that if we already started to see rumbles of construction uh, labor being laid off just because there's not a demand. And we, we definitely need labor in that category. So we have to do a better job of making sure that when demand eventually picks up again, uh, that we have the proper labor pools. Um, so we have to be a little bit more mindful of that uh, because obviously, you know, uh, we we always need more labor in the construction area, and we just never had that you know uh, uh, group that left after the 2008 crisis that stayed waiting for the industry to come back. And it's a very boom and bust cycle anyway. So uh, it's something to keep an eye on going out uh, in the future in terms of uh, do we do we have another cycle where men just leave the workforce and they just don't ever come back? You know that the talking points for um, after, during COVID. 19 are, are we still in this covid period who who can say during that period but since covid 19 since 2020 we you did have a lot of women leaving the workforce when you had you know the fact that schools were shut down um different childcare shut down i mean you had a lot of them leaving my my question is like have those people come back yeah i mean it wasn't as bad as it as it as it seemed um you know there's the so much of our labor force growth you know, especially in the 70s, 80s, is women coming to the workforce. And we, we think about, you know, uh, the women that aren't working. I, I'm, 
I might be wrong with my percentages, but it might be like just 12 or 13% that are staying at home. Uh, uh, so there's a natural level rate of, of women not working because of that. And I think men have risen up as a percentage of just kind of stay at home dads. Uh, you know, we're almost back to the uh, pre COVID 19 levels of employment. Um, but again, if you traditionally, t- if the expansion would have kept on going, more jobs would have been had anyway in, in that light. So definitely COVID has done a number. And I, I'm not one of these people that that believe like the, the, the employment to population data for prime age labor force almost got back to pre-COVID levels. It slightly declined recently. Um, but, you know, there are people that when they lose their jobs, just do not have the ability to come back to work. Majority of people are always working. Right. That's that 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 cannot be lost. Literally, the unemployment rate for people ages 20 and up is like three point three percent. Right. It's like people keep on telling me, well, the labor force participation rates at 64. I say, so you're basically saying somebody hasn't worked for 20 years and that's what you're worried about. Everyone else is working, but you're worried about somebody who stopped working in 1997 and isn't back in the data line that you think is trying to say that. No. Um, uh, a first world problem is that you you need more labor because the demand is there, but uh, we have to be mindful of, you know, is this going to be another time where men lose their job and they just don't come back to work? Um, and uh, especially in the construction area as well. So women, I, I'm actually very, I've always been very bullish on, on women, especially now they're more educated and they get stuff done. Guys, certain guys ugh, have issues with that. But um, so it's something to think about in the future. And again, it's different now because after the great financial recession, job openings were a little bit above 2 million, right? Uh, here, we're over 11 million. Still, even though the data line is starting, the rate of change is cooling. That's what we talked about in the jobs report. Uh, it's still an elevated number. Um, and there's, there are just parts of the US that don't have much growth in the prime age labor force. That's a problem. Uh, because when your when your elderly workers leave, you don't have the, the young work replacement workforce. Uh, so there is a level like you don't you don't really want to have like the unemployment rate under three uh, percent. That means you don't have enough labor in your area. So there, we fire people every month. People don't, people forget about this. Millions of people get fired and hired every month. Uh, it's just that when you have more demand, you hire more than you fire. So there's, there's people getting laid off every single week and every month and, and they find jobs again, you know, right away. So as long as the economy is expanding, the ability to get work quickly is good. Uh, so that's a positive. So again, you know, recessions come and go, but, uh, you know, traditionally the government does not allow recessions to stay long. You get, you know, some, uh, a fiscal stimulus or the Federal Reserve changes their tune. And, you know, hopefully this is not going to be a very long recession. And uh, we just keep things more. We keep people employed. We keep people working, raising families, all the things we have done in America for a very long time, which is a positive. Well, Logan, as always, thanks for uh, getting on and uh, sharing your insights and also what you're seeing in the data. I'll talk to you again in a couple of days since we now do this twice a week. Very excited. Also wanted to uh, point out that you will be a speaker at our HousingWare annual event, which is October 3rd through 5th. You were incredibly popular at the Gathering of Eagles event that we just did in 
um, June, the end of June. And so if people want to see you again live, you will be doing that uh, in October for us. Yes, should be a good time. Nerds can be cool. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) I will let our audience decide. Can nerds be cool? This is our this is our talking point for today. But um, so appreciate you, Logan. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here, Sarah. Does housing market uncertainty have you guessing what's around the corner? This is one reason we created HousingWire Annual, what we're calling the Davos of housing. What does that mean? It's where professionals from across the housing ecosystem come together for great content, but also the opportunity to share strategies, drive business, and discover new technologies with peers, innovators, and power players. Join us October 3rd through 5th at the Fairmont Princess in Scottsdale, Arizona. Head to housingwireannual.com to secure your spot now. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.